0: Uh, this is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thanks so much for being with us on the program here on this Tuesday evening, and there is quite a bit to get to, so we'll go ahead and dive right into it. The biggest news story of the day, at least in the state of Alabama, I would say is probably that Attorney General Marshall, Steve Marshall, of course, is going to be moving forward with charges to Mobile, and apparently they're going to be charging them about uh, $25,000, because that is the fine, according to the law, for removing a famous statue in downtown Mobile. He's saying that moving it from the, the open quarters, from a park, to a museum constitutes a removal that would be a violation of the law in the state of Alabama. You may remember this was a a very controversial law, very hot button issue here in the Yellowhammer state because there was a lot of debate as to whether or not cities should have autonomy and be able to make their own decisions when it comes to their own parks, their own land, that kind of thing. And This law specifically says to cities, towns, municipalities, whoever is in charge of whatever form of government that may take in an individual town, that they basically have to ask permission with removing statues to the state. Now, in order to keep it from seeming as though this was specifically for Confederate statues, they kind of used a large umbrella term that, that you just have to ask permission regardless and I've got to say, I this is something where I don't agree with the idea. I don't agree with the uh, the concept of removing pieces of history. Even if you think that the history is, is evil and wrong, even if it does offend you, I'm a fan of keeping that history around. There are, for example, statues right now in Washington State, and I believe there's also one in New York, if I'm not mistaken, of Vladimir Lenin. I don't think that those statues should be taken down. I'm glad that they're there because they remind us that there were human beings that were stupid enough to believe that Vladimir Lenin was a hero and in need of honoring with a statue. That is something that... I mean, I think is a good thing that we have a reminder that people actually believe that. So I'm not in favor of removing statues, even when it's ones that I disagree with. I think that if it comes up for a, a vote or whatever in these individual cities and municipalities, they ought to opt for not removing them. However, an even more important and an even closer held belief than my belief in that is a belief that individual cities states municipalities in other words the government that is most local that is closest to the people ought to be the one that gets to make that decision. And so I do want to make a clarification here. I have no reason to believe in and, and I've met Steve Marshall several times. I think that he's actually done a pretty darn good job as attorney general. Yes, I've been critical of him from, you know, time and uh, from time to time but I'm a political analyst. That's my job. I'm supposed to be critical of them when I believe that they've screwed up and and I try to be fair with Steve Marshall just like I do any other elected officials where I point out when he makes a mistake and when he doesn't. I do not believe, even though I think that it's wrong to do this, I do not believe that Steve Marshall is to blame here. Steve Marshall is an attorney general. It is his job to enforce the law, not the laws he wish it were, Not the law as he would like for it to be, the law. And just like with police officers, police officers sometimes have to enforce laws that I'm sure they don't agree with. I've actually spoken to police officers that specific laws they have talked about, yeah, those are, they they believe them to be bad laws. Doesn't matter, it's their job. Their job is to enforce the law as it is, as it's read, and as it is written. And by the way, the idea of adhering to a rule of law, it's funny to me that the, it's something when we're talking about the, the political sides of the aisle. Um, really, both parties do this, but it's especially true when it comes to the left. When they talk about the rule of law and we have to adhere to the rule of law, they're really big proponents of it when it benefits them. For example, they were really big proponents of, well, we have to follow the law. It's the law of the land when it comes to things like Obergefell or Roe v. Wade. But they're very much against it when it comes to things like sanctuary cities and whether or not a state can legalize marijuana on its own or not, despite the fact there's a federal law against it. By the way, I tend to, as I said, always err On the side of government, which is closest to the people that is most local, if it is an issue that a locality can handle by itself, then it's one that they ought to. And I really can't think of, with a handful of of maybe some other local ordinances that would be very specific to the culture or the climate or something regarding an individual town, something that would be closer to local government and something that local governments would do a better job of than, okay, what are we going to have in our parks and uh, what kind of landmarks and what kind of statues and memorials are we going to have around town? I mean, if you ask me, that should be wholly up to them. That should be completely 100% in their power, in their control. I I mean... I really can't think of a scenario, and and maybe somebody somebody could fire off in the comment section. Maybe they can come up with a scenario that I'm just not thinking about. But as a general rule, I side with the city and municipality having that power. And maybe Steve Marshall has the same position I do. I don't know. I've actually never asked him about that. The next time we get him on the show, I'll have to ask him. But when it comes to that, that's not his job to ask, okay, what do I want the law to be and let me just enforce it the way creatively that I think it should as as if the law as if the law read the way that I would like it to. That's not his job. That would make him a very terrible attorney general if he did that even if I agreed with the fact that cities ought to be able to do that themselves. And so really the primary gripe that I have here is with the state, not with Steve Marshall with the state. It bothers me That the state believes that it is their position, that it is something that they should be able to do to uh, be able to dictate that to the cities. And the fact that now there is a fine, which $25,000 is not chump change, but it's also not an exorbitant amount either. I'm not saying that the fine itself is inappropriate. I'm just saying that $25,000 is going to be a paltry amount to a lot of these larger cities that are going to look at this and go... Yeah, let's just go ahead and get rid of it. I think Mobile is going to have no problem with doing that. I think they did put the thing in the museum, maybe partly because at least some of the people were like, well, we'd like to preserve it. I think the probably the majority of the people were just like, well, maybe if we put it in a museum and don't destroy it or just remove it from public site completely, maybe the state will be lenient on that and it won't cost us $25,000. I don't know that for sure. Remember that because of the riots and everything that's happened and some damage that the statue sustained, that in Lynn Park, there are monuments like the Confederate monument that has been taken down in Birmingham. Now, what I'm guessing is going to happen is Birmingham is going to hold out on that as long as humanly possible, and then Steve Marshall is going to come down on them eventually for not putting it back, because, of course, the excuse that they're going to use is, well, we took it down because other people were trying to tear it down because there were riots. Okay, well, that excuse is probably legitimate for a few weeks, and then after everything is calmed down, if you don't put it back up, again, according to the law, not my personal beliefs, that would be a violation of that statute. And now you have to either put it back up or pay the fine for removing it. And so what is going to happen here, and I think that this is the earliest stage of this, is that the state is essentially going to be selling back the right to be able to have autonomy over your own parks and your own land within your own city to the cities and, and their governments. So basically, it's kind of like, well, you don't, it's illegal, but if you pay the fine, then that's the end of it, and we're not going to make you erect the statue again. Now, if that does happen, and I think that that is the way that this seems to be going, your big cities like Birmingham and Mobile, and I don't know if there are any in Huntsville, but if there are, huntsville and uh, you know maybe you're even mid-sized cities your auburns Opelikas, tuscaloosas uh, those kind of cities enterprise that kind of thing they'll probably wind up at least considering it if not going the same route and doing the same thing now i think that because those cities are not quite as blue and they're more they're almost more suburban than they are urban then there's going to be less support for that. So I think that a lot of those cities will just decide to leave them up because you know their city's probably about 50-50 on whether or not to keep it anyway. Uh, So I think that that'll probably happen with those mid-sized cities, but definitely the larger cities, they're just going to look at it and opt to take it down. Montgomery, because the capital is here, I don't know. It's hard to tell. But either way, I think that what is going to happen there is that you are going to see the state essentially saying, if you pay us this money, we'll give you back your own autonomy. This is one of the reasons that I oppose this law so much and the reason why I think it's wrong. It's wrong to sell a person's rights back to them. It's the same reason, by the way, for those of you that are conservatives and Second Amendment advocates like myself that might be listening, it's the same reason that I oppose gun permits. Well, We're supposed to already have the right to keep and bear arms. The idea that you then have to sell me a certificate to inform me and and to inform law enforcement that I am now legally allowed to carry the arm, which, by the way, the Constitution already guarantees me the right to do, is nonsense. You shouldn't have to sell me back my right so that I have to pay you to use the right that I'm supposed to already have. And in the same way, it's wrong for the state to do this. I called for it to fail when it came up to a vote. I called for it to be rescinded when it passed. I'm calling for it again. This bill does need to be rescinded. Give the cities in Alabama their autonomy back. I think it's dumb to tear down Confederate statues and Confederate monuments and memorials. Maybe there are some exceptions to that. I'd have to look at it at a case-by-case basis. And sometimes I think there is good reason uh, to at least consider that. I've heard some compelling arguments on that side before. Again, I I think it's something that should be handled on a case-by-case basis. But nonetheless, I do think that there is at least... You can make an intelligent, valid argument, and I think if the cities determine that that is what they need to do, well then, all right, go ahead and do it. I may disagree with your conclusion, but you have the right to make that choice yourself. And the state of Alabama should not intervene in that. Another big local story that came out in the news today... uh, Kay Ivey has come under fire from multiple different sources. One that really springs to mind is a opinion piece that was published by ale.com earlier today by Roy Johnson and the, the cutesy little gimmick and the, the the thing that they tried to use to draw you into it is can you hear governor Ivy? And sometimes when opinion writers and I'm not just talking about the ale.com I'm talking about, you know, in, in all publications, Sometimes when opinion writers put together a little gimmick of that, it works really well, and it's really thoughtful, it's, it's thought-provoking. This one's really not. And here's the reason why. I disagree with a lot of the things that Johnson is saying in this article. For example, that uh, he, and he gives no basis for this whatsoever in the article, uh, saying, well, now it's time for us to think about expanding Medicaid. Basically, it's amazing to me how everything that happens in the world, every major world event... When it comes to a liberal, oh, that, that's proof that we should be following everything that they've been vying for for the past 20 years. Coronavirus is a great example, which is one that Johnson tries to connect to this here is like, well, you know, we've been saying that we needed uh, thing X to be put into place. And then every new news story that comes out, oh, this is a reason that we need thing X. In this case, Medicaid. The coronavirus is coming. Ah, well, that's, you know, a medical problem. And so we need to increase our Medicaid and expand Medicaid in the state of Alabama because of that. Now, completely ignore the fact that all 13 of the states that have not expanded Medicaid, all 13 of them are below average when it comes to coronavirus deaths, and that several of them are actually have the lowest deaths, and that every single one of them is not only below average, but there's only two of them that are in the top 25. Three of them. Yes, three of them. Okay, just making sure that I I did that segment like a month and a half ago, so I was making sure I had my stats right. So there's only three states in the entirety of the country that have not expanded Medicaid that are even in the top 25, and Alabama is not one of them uh, because we're actually 25th. So, um, and and when you work in Washington, D.C., you know, that's how you figure it. But anyway, so... It's amazing to me how every single solution that pops up is the thing that they've been vying for. When, when racism comes around, ah, see, there's systematic racism, ergo, we need to expand Medicaid. It doesn't matter what it is. Like, uh, we had a uh, lunar eclipse last night. Oh, well, obviously that means that we need to expand Medicaid. That's, that's what that's telling us. So it is amazing some of the mental hoops that they'll jump through. But the overall gimmick is dumb. And sometimes those gimmicks work really well. Sometimes it makes the, the piece more interesting, more compelling. In this one, it was just him saying, Shh, can you hear the governor speaking? He said that like 50 times in this one short little opinion column. Here's the thing, though. I don't mind bashing governor, governor Ivy when I think she deserves it. And frankly, I wish that she were more vocal on this. I think that Johnson actually makes a decent point in this. I think that he beats a dead horse when he does it every other paragraph. But nonetheless... Uh, there is a good point in the sense that all this stuff is going on in the world and Governor Ivey has not said anything about it. But the thing is, if you're looking at it from the the prospect of, of somebody on the left, you know that if she did come out and say something about it, it would be immediately criticized. The only way that it wouldn't be is if she came out and went full on uh, Colin Kaepernick on it and, and kneeled for the anthem. I don't even know if that would satisfy them. Uh, but kneeled for the anthem and, and full-on did everything that they asked. And even then, I think they'd find something to nitpick about within a couple of weeks. But when it comes to Governor Ivy, I understand the frustration, and it's a frusta- uh, frustration that I sometimes share myself, because when it comes to Governor Ivy, this is her M.O. She's always quiet as a mouse when anything controversial shows up. That's what K.I.V. Ivey is. She hides from the people, and she hides from controversy. The only political mantra that she believes in is, hey, don't rock the boat, don't make waves. That's the only thing that she's ever done, and it served her very well. I mean, for Pete's sake, she's the governor, and I know that she got to that position in a really weird, quirky way, but her election basically ran off of that principle as well. You may recall that in Alabama, we had three really good conservative candidates and also Governor Ivey. And I think that there were some that were obviously better than others when it came to conservative candidates, but as I maintained and as I've been proven right time and time again, Governor Ivey is by far the least conservative of those three candidates. And she has proven my point on that as often as as she is given an opportunity. She's not like a full-on liberal, but she's certainly not a conservative, especially not in the fiscal sense. But nonetheless, I, I get that it makes sense to make fun of governor ivy and, and to poke at her a little bit because she shies away from things and hides from things but i also think that it's kind of a low-hanging fruit at this point point. and the reason that i say that is governor ivy's just always done that and so it's just something that's sort of baked into the cake it almost doesn't make sense to be mad at her about it even when it frustrates you it would be like being mad at president trump for being mean Or being mad at Rand Paul for really liking the Constitution and not being a big fan of government. Or being mad at AOC for being an imbecile. Like, all of these things are baked in. We all knew these things about them before they were elected. And so, I don't know, after a while, it just seems like you're beating a dead horse to continue to bring that quality and that trade up. But this is the line of attack that they have chosen at AL.com, apparently. I don't know. Uh, so let's go ahead and go into a case that has been really, I mean, just all over the national news. And I think that it's important that we talk about it because even though it's not a local story, even though it's not a story in Alabama, it's one that is very close to us in Atlanta, Georgia. I mean, if you're living in Auburn, you can be in Atlanta in what an hour and a half. And so this is something that, of course, has national implications. It has implications for us because it's our next-door neighbor that is dealing with this right now. For those of you who haven't seen what all has been going on with Richard Brooks, for those of you that don't know exactly what happened, so a police officer actually got into a scuffle with him, and we'll go into some of the details here in a second with video, got into a scuffle with him, and that ended in the police officer taking this man's life. That's just what happened. I mean, those are the facts. Well, this all happened in a Wendy's parking lot. And protesters the next day burned down the Wendy's, which is really odd. And also, here's the interesting piece of of detail, and I haven't been able to independently confirm this, but this is a report that I have seen. We'll see if there is any truth to it. Uh, That one of the the person that actually struck the match and, and basically set the building on fire was a white person and that would lead us to believe that this is probably Antifa doing infiltration again. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, but you know, j- just a possibility, something to be on the lookout in upcoming days. I'm not trying to say for sure that we know that is the case, but we have seen videos and I've actually covered videos of, of Antifa infiltrating black lives matter protest and, and trying to not the black lives matter is innocent in this, but Black Lives Matter trying to uh, incite riots and, and try to make things worse than they are, trying to, to whip up the crowd. And so just something to be aware of, just something to be on the lookout for. But the thing that is so crazy in this case, and this is why I am hesitant to jump on a bandwagon until I've seen the evidence for myself, never, ever trust a person or a news source, or an organization, or anything like that 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 dispenses information, that you know that they already have a position before the story starts. This is something that you should never trust. And when it comes to these police police brutality cases and, and things like this, First of all, the narrative has been completely wrong. and We'll show you why in a second with video evidence. The media came out and was saying that this was an unarmed black man, which is not true. He was unarmed, and then he stole a police officer's weapon. And basically, he was just peacefully sitting in the drive-thru at Wendy's, minding his own business, not doing anything, and police targeted him, sought him out, and then uh, for no reason, even though he was being peaceful, killed him. I've actually seen media reports from the left that are claiming this. But when you dig into the story and read what actually happened and watch the video footage, which there is an abundance of, for yourself, it turns out the exact opposite is true. Now, there are people that uh, go into these things with their minds already made up, and we all know this. There are people that we know, I'm sure that everybody knows at least one person like this, going into a case like this that always assumes that either the cop is always right or the black person is always right. Unfortunately, that is something we see on a pretty consistent basis, that there is at least a section of the population that always assumes that one side is right before having seen any evidence. What I am somewhat encouraged to see, especially from the conservative side, is that when it came to, like, the George Floyd case, for example, every single conservative that I'm aware of, everyone of renown, automatically said, well, that's not right. That's completely unjust. Those police officers are murdering that man. And then when it comes to this case, the exact opposite, which would lead you to believe what? That they are following the evidence where it leads. That's the standard that we need to maintain no matter what. That we observe the evidence and then make a call, not the other way around. Not because of our political leanings or because of the color of our skin or any other factor other than what does the truth say, where does the evidence lead, and I will follow it wherever it goes, whether it makes me uncomfortable or not, whether or not it fits my narrative. That's the standard that we have to maintain. And any objective, fair-minded person looking at all of the evidence that led up to this would have to say that the police officer is at the very least, you know, acting in good faith at this point. And here's why. We'll go ahead and show you some of the footage of this. This is the first one, and and it's important to show this because a lot of news programs that are talking about this going into the story, they're not showing you the lead up to all of these events, which does change the context. And so one thing that you'll notice in this story, and I'll continue to to help narrate and point some things out as we're looking at it, is that this guy, regardless of how you feel about him or the police officers or whether you're not systematic, racism is a thing or whatever, this dude's clearly on something this is the police officer. There he is. He was stopped in a drive through with the windows. Right, police officer banging hey. on in his window. Sir! What's up, man? Police officer is in a drive through right, right now. And sees you. Everything's on camera. Sees you. In, in the line here, in the line. In the line, well, I, was, I wasn't in the line. Did I pull you over in the line? You just saw a video. I he up, was you had to in wake up, man. Line. You didn't in pull the, him right off. here. No, over there. I had to wake you up. Well, look. They went back to sleep, and I had to wake you up again. So you, you think that you're in Forest Park right now? I'm on Old Dixie Highway, Clayton County. Right. No, you're not. Well, Forest Park, Georgia. No. Jonesboro, Georgia. No. Try again. I have to, I mean, like I said, I'm on Old Dixie Highway. Nope. I'm not on Old Dixie Highway? No. Nope. Quite a ways away from it. Huh? This is, a bridge is here. Nope, no bridge. No, I'm saying Old Dixie Highway. You're not near Old Dixie Highway. I'm not, not you're on You're not even in Clayton County. Where am I? You're in Atlanta. Will you take a preliminary breath test for me? It's yes or no. I don't want to refuse anything. Uh, it's yes or no. It's completely up to you. Yes, I will. Oh, okay. Just wait here while I grab it. All right. So that's the, all of the lead up. And by the way, that video was 40 minutes long. You just saw about 90 seconds of it. And so you can go and watch the whole thing online. There's a lot of build up to this whole event and everything that unfolded. But you can tell from that video, this dude is clearly on something. And so the idea that the police officers just saw a black man, targeted him, which, by the way, if this were happening in Atlanta, you would think that the police officers would have done so beforehand. It's a, um, if I'm not mistaken, Atlanta is at least a, uh, a close to, if not a majority black city. Um, but when it, when it comes to this, the, the narrative that has been pushed is that this guy was just sitting there minding his own business. The police officers dragged him out of his car for no reason other than the fact that he was black that dude was passed out in a Wendy's drive-thru line. So he clearly drove there under the influence of something, which is already a crime. And he's passed out, so passed out that the cop bangs on his door, opens his door, is yelling, Hey, you okay? Hey, you all right? And he still doesn't wake up. And this is the part that I had to skip over for the sake of time. He wakes the guy up. He tells him to pull over into a parking spot there. The guy uh, closes the door, falls asleep again. They're in the drive-thru line. The cop has to wake him up again. He drives over to the parking spot. Finally, they start having a conversation. This guy has no idea where he is. He doesn't even know what county he's in. He's seeing bridges off in the distance that don't exist. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it was just alcohol. Maybe it's alcohol mixed with something else. But either way, the idea that these cops didn't have a good reason to question and detain this person is asinine. I mean, this is clearly a person that is a danger to the public because he's been operating a vehicle, and that's another thing. He, he tried, he's lied to the cops multiple times in this video. Uh, at one point, he tells them that the only thing he had was a margarita. Later in the video, he says, well, uh, I had a daiquiri and doesn't mention the margarita. At one point, he says he only had one drink. At one point, he says he only had two. At one point, he says he had one and a half drinks. Uh, at one point, he says he can't remember what he drank. At one point, he said he's had nothing to drink at all since yesterday. I mean, th- the guy constantly lies to these guys throughout the entire process. He's clearly trying to get out of a DUI. He makes up some crazy story about someone dropping him off in his car already being there, forgetting that they found him in the drive through line, not in a parking lot. He doesn't even remember the cop waking him up 10 minutes ago and moving him into the parking spot as, a tr- as opposed to the drive through lane. So that context makes a really big difference. And that's the kind of stuff that the media is not telling you. And it's not like this is some hidden secret. The media, it's not as though, uh, you know, they just didn't have this footage yet. It's all over the Internet. If they bothered to do five minutes worth of research, they would see every bit of this narrative is completely wrong. But that's the build-up, and and finally, he does agree to have a breathalyzer test. He, he tries to take a sobriety test, which he fails miserably. Uh, I don't know, because they don't actually say he doesn't verbalize it in the video, what the breathalyzer test showed, but directly after taking the breathalyzer test, that's when things start to escalate, because... Up till then, they've been very nice. They've been very cordial. They've been very cooperative and patient. Like I said, the video goes on for about 40 minutes, which means that they were trying to let this guy explain. They, they've they been very patient with him. They didn't rush right to uh, any kind of violence, which again is, is kind of indicative of where their head is. Because the media narrative that these are white cops that just sought out uh, give, you know, giving a black guy some trouble for no reason, if they were going out to kill a black person and that was the goal... First of all, why the heck would you do it in a Wendy's parking lot? And second of all, this is the worst possible way to do it because you wouldn't have all this buildup and talking to the guy, trying to make sure that he's safe. And you'll see that right here where we show the part directly before everything escalates and everything goes south. While he was peaceful, while he was cooperating, the police officers were very calm, very professional, very patient, even though they know he's lying to them, even though they know he's trying to get away with something. They're still very patient and professional with him. The only point at which it gets violent, at which they try to subdue the guy, is when he escalates the situation towards them, not the other way around. And you can see that in this clip here. Make sure, man, you're safe to drive, that's all. I know, man, I just... You, you scared me a little bit because you were sleeping in there, so that's you know why I was making sure you're okay. You know, and that's... This concern. I know, I know, you just saw your job. Right. Just... Take me home. I'm ready to go. So you had about one and a half drinks, but you don't remember what kind of drinks they were? No, sir. All right. I really I'm don't, understand. All right, I think you've had Man, too much had to drink to be driving. Put your hands on your back for put your hands on your back. Hands off the taser! Hands off the taser! He's going for the officer's taser. This is the same event from a different angle. This is the dash footage. You can see there, the cops have him down on the ground. And it looks like they've got him for a second. He's still struggling. Cop pulls his taser, tries to tase him, fails to. Still struggling. Right, so he flips the cop over on him. And see, this is where he takes the police officer's taser. He's got the taser. He runs off. And so, not only does this guy wrestle two police officers, punches one in the head, slams one down on the concrete, and then when one of the officers tries to pull a taser, a non-lethal weapon, because he's trying to subdue him without hurting him, he takes the officer's taser and runs off with it. And so the idea that this was just a peaceful guy, that the police officers gunned down for no reason other than they wanted to shoot a black man is just absolutely ridiculous. He stole the officer's weapon. He fought the police officers before that. And they were very polite with him. The only time where violence ensued, the only time where the police said, okay, we've got to get physical with him is when he started trying to hurt them. And that's something that not only a police officer has the right to do as an officer of the law who is charged with enforcing our laws and keeping this guy from driving under the influence of alcohol and whatever else he's got in his system, but also they are charged with that just as being human beings that have the ability and the inborn human right to preserve their own life. This guy has already attacked them. He has already tried to seize their weapon. He, and it's only when he's the one that escalates it that they start trying to go after him. They start trying to bring him down and and arrest him. That's the only time where things go south. And by the way, because you can't see from the body cam, uh, the body cam actually winds up falling off in the scuffle. And I mean, you could see why they're rolling around there uh, on the ground with this guy trying to get him handcuffed. And uh, so the body cam falls off. It doesn't really show us the events of the shot. But we do have the clip of that as well. This is surveillance footage from the Wendy's, and so we'll go ahead and show that, show that right now. It's security camera footage, so there's no sound, but I'll narrate. All right, so there it is. You see he's running across the screen. Now watch. See right there? All right, well, now we'll show it again. Now watch Richard Brooks as he's running. So he's running from the cops. The cop is pursuing him. He's got his taser out. Hand on his pistol. And we'll watch it one more time. Watch where the police officer's hand goes to his pistol. And when he draws it and when he fires. Because that last scene there is right when the firing happens. You see it? Right there. Hand on the pistol. His hand only goes for his weapon. His lethal weapon. His firearm. When Brooks points the taser back at him the taser that he stole from the other police officer. So the police officer, even after he's stolen the man's taser, he pulls his own taser, tries to fire. I don't know if it hit him and just didn't phase him because he was on something or uh, it just missed or whatever, but you can see the guy turn around and we'll actually show it one more time because I wanted to point this out as well. Not only does Brooks Pull the taser on the officer, but you'll see a flash right here. See it? So that's the taser going off. And it is only at the point where the guy turns around and turns a weapon on the police officer that he fires his gun. And so, up until then, the police officer seems to have absolutely no intent of hurting this guy, even though this guy clearly has intent and already has tried to hurt him. And it's only when he turns around with the taser and people are saying, well, the taser is a non-lethal weapon. There's two reasons why that argument really doesn't hold water. First of all, a non-lethal weapon is determined only by the user. My fist is a lethal weapon if I use it the right way. In fact, more people are killed by hands and feet than firearms in this country every single year. That's an actual FBI crime statistic. And so theoretically, this guy could use the taser, incapacitate the officer, and then kill him, hurt him, or go off and hurt somebody else. And furthermore, and this is the second part of that, the police officer also has a gun. And so if this guy were to fire the taser, incapacitate the officer, and then take his firearm, he could wind up killing the officer, killing somebody else. There's no telling where this could end. That is why when you resist arrest and you are pointing a weapon at an officer, the officer has every right to defend himself and the public at that point, just like literally any other citizen would. If this were just a regular citizen, now obviously a regular citizen couldn't make a citizen's arrest like this and in this capacity, but if there were a scuffle going on between somebody, let's say that a random guy saw that... Uh, someone had a taser on his belt, he goes for the man's weapon and then tries to turn it on him, that person would absolutely be justified in using lethal force to combat the assault upon his person. And I understand. Let's hold police officers to a higher standard. That is something that I am in favor of. Remember, I'm mostly a libertarian, (laughs) which means generally, I'm not a fan of heavy-handed government. And that holds true with police officers as well. But in this situation, whether that guy was a police officer or not, he has a right to defend his life. And so, I mean, really, there's no other way to put it. Everything that led up to that, all of the context surrounding it, shows that this police officer was 100% in the right. He was 100% justified in that. And the only thing that I don't understand how the mayor of the city here in Atlanta demanded that police this police officer be fired and there, there be an investigation launched into this. Personally, I don't have an issue with there being an investigation, but that's got to be a pretty open and shut case based on this footage. I, I don't really understand or see how it could be anything else when you consider what just happened, what just unfolded right in front of your very eyes. Because if there were ever a case of what a police officer should do, like, if that's the level of escalation, well, then what would it take to justify a police officer defending his life and using lethal force? If that's not a textbook example of a justification of the use of lethal force, generally, like, what is? Does the guy have to shoot the cop first and land a blow before he's allowed to fire back? I I mean... We talk about police training and police reform, and I'm OK with those conversations. I think that those conversations can lead somewhere good and, and you know, probably would. We could stand to have a little police, uh, you know, better training. I'm always in favor of that if you can convince me that it's something that would be beneficial and helpful. And I think that that very often can be the case. But in this particular situation, in this scenario, can anybody that has been commenting on this, mayors, uh, politicians, can you explain to me what you should have done, what would have been different, what would have been better? And if not, what is the qualification for lethal use of force? They constantly, and we actually talked about this not too long ago with Joe Biden saying, well, we should just train cops to shoot people in the legs. Yeah, that's that's not a thing that can, they're not Rambo. This isn't the movies. They can't hit a person's legs in motion like that. I mean, you'd have to be even the best trained military in the world, our military couldn't be trained to do something like that. That's insane. Uh, they wouldn't be able to do it consistently at least. But anyway, so everything leading up to this would show that the police officer was absolutely justified. Thing that happened to George Floyd absolutely not. Thing that happened to Ahmed Ar- Arbery Absolutely not. And the second part of this that I think that people aren't bringing in is, and and I know that the police officers don't know this, they can't have knowledge of this, and so this doesn't really speak to how their reaction of it should have been. But I do find it odd that the left is constantly trying to make martyrs and saints out of some of the people involved in these circumstances. In George Floyd's case, police officers absolutely 100% wrong. Murder charge is wholly appropriate for the officer that was kneeling on the guy's neck for seven minutes. However, I don't understand the desire to make this guy into a saint, to make this guy into a a martyr for the cause. They did the same thing with Mike Brown, trying to make him out to be, I remember the phrase being used over and over again in the media, the gentle giant, when there was no truth to that, the guy was a thug, and the reason that he had had an altercation with the police officers in the first place that led up to his death which, again, was justified. The thing that led up to that is that he knocked off a gas station. And in the case of George Floyd, what happened to him obviously was not justified, but the reason that the police officers stopped him in the first place were because he was in possession of drugs at the time and this guy had a rap sheet. He had been in and out of of jail and, and all kinds of legal trouble. And then in the case of Richard Brooks, this guy has a rap sheet as long as your arm. In fact, one of the charges brought up on there that he was, if I'm not mistaken, found guilty of looking through the legal records is cruelty to children. And they're trying to make this guy out into some kind of saint that ought to be, uh, uh, ought to be thought of fondly and his life was tragically ended too short despite him being perfect and not harming anybody. This guy was a scumbag. Now, if the officers had acted inappropriately, that wouldn't have justified that even if he was a scumbag, just like George Floyd being a terrible person doesn't change the fact that he was murdered and the police should be held accountable for that. But I really don't understand why they make these guys the martyrs and not people like Breonna Taylor or Botham Jean. I mean, that would make far more sense. They actually were good people. That didn't do anything wrong. Didn't do anything to provoke fl- police officers, and lost their lives tragically because of a, you know, a horrible mistake by police officers that obviously were not doing their job the way that they should. And so I don't understand why they don't make those guys the rallying cries as opposed to this guy and George Floyd. It just doesn't make any sense. But anyway, uh, I tell you what, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. And we'll be back in just a minute on tactics. Uh, this is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us. I wanted to do something that was just a little bit different today, and uh, I had a friend that was asking me some advice when it comes to debating because we all know over the past couple of weeks, and I'm not just talking about the racial issues thing; I'm talking about everything with COVID nineteen. Uh, There's so many issues that are really touchy, really sensitive right now, and it feels like there's very much a raw nerve in the country when it comes to these things. People are ending friendships over one another because of political disagreements. And so they were asking me, and I really appreciate questions like this, by the way. They were asking me how to have these very difficult conversations, especially with a fellow Christian, somebody that they, they know, they love, that goes to church with them, that they consider friends, but there seems to be this sticking point that they can't get past when it comes to, for example, a political issue. And this is really important, because if we're going to maintain the unity of the brotherhood, the unity of the church, this is something that's important for us to learn how to do. And it's so tragic, and I've said this many times on the show in different forms before, that our children are not taught how to do these things early on they're taught that polite people avoid such conversations they avoid such topics and so they never really learn how to have these difficult conversations and not take it personally and so there are a few tips here i don't know exactly how effective they'll be but they're, they're things that help me when i'm having these difficult discussions First of all, if the person is throwing out a label or some kind of ad hominem attack, ad hominem, of course, meaning to the man. So in other words, a personal attack on you or your character, unless it is somehow relevant to the discussion, just ignore it. Just ignore it. I know that that's difficult to do. But I mean, if you are in a conversation, and especially if there are onlookers watching the conversation going on, and they're flinging out, you know, profanities or personal assaults on your character that have nothing to do with the discussion at hand, the best thing that you can do is focus on the bit of the conversation that was focused on the issue at hand and completely ignore the insults. Now, don't insult them back. Don't retaliate or anything. And believe me, anybody else that sees that will realize, okay, this is a pretty reasonable person. And they may not admit it, but even the person that you are arguing against and debating against, even that person will secretly admire you for it. Even that person will look at it and go, man, they, they've really got their temper under control. Now, it may take a little self-reflection. It may take a little time and distance from the issue being so so raw and so, you know, on the surface. But if they remember that they got really tense with you and said some things that they shouldn't have said and you just kind of brushed it off, people admire that. They really do. Even if they won't admit it at the time. Now, The difficult part of this is when a person's rebuttal is just ad hominem attacks, has nothing to do with the issue that you're discussing, and they just hurl insults at you, my response to that is don't respond at all then. If they do not offer anything of substance, then your response should either be nothing, just completely ignore them because that's probably not a person interested in having a productive conversation anyway, or... And this is another strategy. You can say, when you're ready to talk about the actual issue instead of me, you know, let me know. Message me. But if you, the problem is when you start answering personal insults, then the discussion becomes about you and not the issue. And so that never leads anywhere productive in my experience. The second tip that I'll give today, recognize when to hit that eject button. Because no matter how good you are at debate, no matter how uh, knowledgeable you are on the issue, no matter how passionate you are, none of that stuff matters, which normally does in a discussion like this, none of that matters at all if the person is not willing to have a conversation. If the person is not willing to actually sit there and discuss the issue calmly and rationally, there comes a time where you have to hit the eject button and just say, I'm out. This isn't going anywhere. Now, there's a couple different indicators that it's probably time to take a step back. If you start talking in circles, in other words, you just keep rehashing old ground that you've already talked about, that tends to be a pretty good indication that, all right, let's take a step step back and maybe we can pick up this discussion later. Or say, you know what, I'm out. I've said everything that I need to say. It's obvious I can't convince you. This is actually a biblical principle. Jesus talks about, at a certain point, you are casting pearls before swine, and of course he was talking about sharing the gospel. That you're going to hit a certain point, or you're occasionally going to run up against people that have immutized themselves to the truth. They don't want to hear your position, they're not interested in your position, and this actually goes a little bit back to point number one. This is something that if you remember back when I was doing the call-in show on News Radio 1440 when I was uh, on Weekday Mornings, This was something that I did very often, that once somebody just started hurling out either insults or it became very abundantly clear that they didn't actually want to have a conversation, they just wanted to yell at me, I ended the conversation right then and there, because it wasn't going to go anywhere productive. You do have to, and this is tricky and it's something hard that's even hard for me to do as much experience as I have in this realm, that sometimes you have to realize... Yep, there's nothing I can say here. They're not interested in my points. A really good indication of this as well is when you put out a fact and they just ignore the fact. When you put out something, you've sourced your material, you have a, a good reason, a rationale behind it, and they don't even consider it, they just automatically dismiss it. Well, if they automatically dismiss it, they're probably not interested in new information and it's probably pretty pointless for you to continue that conversation. The one exception to this rule is when you have onlookers there are other people watching you debate and sometimes it is fruitful to have the conversation and allow it to keep going let the other person continue to hang themselves on their own rope just for the spectacle of that but i think even that if gone on too long people start losing interest and they'll think that you're just a person that can't control their temper and has to to argue for the sake of being right so that's not a good position to put yourself in Even in that circumstance, I think that the time to press the eject button may be a little bit longer, but it's still there. And so recognize that as well. Sometimes you can extend it a little longer for the sake of the audience, but at a certain point, even that's not productive anymore and you have to decide to go ahead and jump out. And on this, if reason is not the basis of your discussion, then it has no hope. If all you're doing is talking about anecdotal evidence or a, the person's feelings or their experiences, maybe the person doesn't even realize that they're doing that, but either bring it to their attention, and if they can't come back to a reasoned discussion, if, if you can't agree on the math, then no conversation that you can have afterward is going to make any sense. And another tip that I have learned that is good, have these conversations, I know this is a little bit difficult to do, when quarantine land have these conversations face-to-face as often as possible. Well, granted, if it's something that's over the internet or it's somebody that lives along to, uh, a very far distance away, a phone conversation or Skype or FaceTime or something like that is definitely the better way to have a, a tough, tough discussion like this. But even, even with those options available, face-to-face is just the better way to handle it. There are people that are buddies of mine that have wildly different political opinions than I do. And one of the ways that we maintain our friendship, one of the ways that we maintain uh, just sort of keeping the lines of communication open is we tend to try to have these conversations one-on-one if possible, if not with a group of friends and face-to-face. And that really does make it really, really different because people are apt to be crueler, They're apt to do more personal attacks, and they're also apt to misunderstand each other through no fault of anybody's, just the fact that text doesn't carry with it context, tone, demeanor, facial expression, any of those things. The exact same phrase given in text form can take on a very, very different meaning when spoken. And so that is a big difference that I think uh, will avoid a lot of pain and suffering when it comes to being misunderstood if you simply are able to have these conversations face-to-face so that's uh, sort of my debate tips for today and i am actually going to do something that's a little bit different because you guys know i'm a minister brevity is not exactly our strong suit it's just it's an occupational hazard as it were and so when it comes to this uh my daily doses of stupid can go on for 10, 20. I've even had one go 30 minutes one time, even though those are rare. Uh, so usually I have a lot to say. And because of that, it manifests itself in the daily dose of stupid, especially the stupider it is, the more I have to say about it, because, I mean, let's be honest, I just, I'm long winded. You knew that going into the show, you knew what you we were getting yourself into. But I'm actually going to attempt tonight the shortest daily dose of stupid that I have ever done. It's going to be featuring Chris Cuomo, And it will consist of a clip of him and me offering a one-word rebuttal. So let's see if we can do this. We're going to try to set a record. I think I can get it under 30 seconds, gang, so let's try this. It's time now for the Daily Dose of Stupid. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. (laughs) All right, like I said, for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, we go to Chris Cuomo talking about everything that's been going on in the country. Watch. Now, too many see the protests as the problem. No, the problem is what forced your fellow citizens to take to the streets, persistent and poisonous inequities and injustice. And please show me where it says that protests are supposed to be polite and peaceful. Here. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps under the command of General George Washington Each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday while other armies advanced on their feet. Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the chaplain's report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. All right. And today's chaplain's report is going to be back in the book of first Samuel. We've been doing this series for, I guess, a couple months now going through the book of 1 Samuel, and there is a wealth of information in there. Now, to sort of reset the table here, just so you know what's going on, you may recall if you were watching yesterday that Israel is about to go into battle. They've already, even though uh, Saul kind of jumped the gun here and disobeyed God and offered the sacrifice before he should have— the thing that you need to understand about this passage is Saul and Jonathan and the rest of Israel are all gathering together. They're about to go in and fight with the Philistines. And so, about 600 men, according to the Scripture, have gathered together for this battle. And this is the context in which this particular passage of Scripture takes place. So, let's go to 1 Samuel 13, verses 19 through 22. Now, no blacksmith could be found in the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his hoe. The charge was two thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes to fit the hoes. So it came about on the day of battle. That neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they found, were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. Now, strictly as somebody that follows politics, even if I were not somebody that were interested in the Bible or its spiritual message, that is an interesting lesson in foreign policy. If nothing else, it's a fascinating lesson in a nation being self-sufficient and that being a good thing, because if you are sufficient on a neighboring nation, and and this would be true of uh, you know individual states, it would be true of countries, you don't need to be dependent upon, especially for your military needs and equipment, another country that could turn against you, because it seems that that is what is going on here. Uh, the Philistines had blacksmiths, they had metal workers, they had people that made weapons of war. Israelites didn't. And because they didn't, the Philistines realized that they didn't have that ability to make those themselves, and so all of the people there in, in the Philistine camp was like, all right, when the Israelites come down to get their plowshares or whatever made into swords and spears, y'all don't do that. You're going to charge them a ridiculous amount of money that they, they're they not going to agree to pay. And so that'll happen. And, and even if by some reason they wind up doing that because we basically got a monopoly on weapon making here, that uh, even if they agreed to do that, okay, maybe they get spears and swords, but now we have all their money. And so we're going to bleed them of resources either way. I mean, from a battle perspective, it's pretty darn smart. Especially when you consider that nowadays, when someone refers to someone else as a Philistine, they're basically saying that you're a caveman or an an imbecile, something like that, a Neanderthal. But uh, the Philistine's pretty smart battle strategy here. And I think that it's, of course, a lesson in that, and it's a lesson in being self-sufficient for individual nations. There's sort of a political message here. But far more important than that, in typical Bible fashion is the spiritual message. The spiritual message, uh, when you're looking at this, there is a great deal of emphasis placed on preparation and self-sufficiency. And now we're taking it outside the realm of Israel's physical struggle with the Philistines and into our spiritual struggle. There is an emphasis that is placed on those who have prepared and thought ahead and made themselves ready for battle. And in this case, I think that one lesson we could draw from this, and it is a truism of the human condition, generally speaking, maybe with a handful of rare exceptions, people do not rise to the occasion. Maybe in some kind of limited, rare circumstance, do you have somebody that hasn't prepared, that hasn't gotten ready, that just whenever they, they step up and it's time to perform, they just bring the house down. Yeah, that happens for a handful of people, child uh, prodigies, that kind of thing, but the average person, it just doesn't. And that's also something that even if you could do that, you really shouldn't rely on. There is a virtue being communicated about Israel when it comes to preparedness, when it comes to making sure you have the resources available to succeed, to protect yourself, to protect your family, and this would extend to the spiritual as well. When it comes to us and our our fight against what the Bible calls not flesh and blood, but evil and principalities, we got to be prepared for that. Our weapons have to be ready. And it's not enough to rely on somebody else to sharpen our weapons for them. We've got to figure out ways to make our weapons sharp. In other words, to make ourselves sharp and make ourselves ready for that conflict when it comes up. The eve of battle is a really, really bad time to start planning these things. I mean, you can't just, at least they couldn't in this day, they couldn't just mass produce things on this scale that they're going to need for this battle at the last minute like this. It just can't be done. And in this case, they didn't even have a blacksmith to do that, even if they did want to try to rush everything. And so make sure you're going to have the things that you need beforehand. And what I tell people when they're dealing with temptation, and this is something that, of course, I struggle with on a daily basis as well, and so I'm preaching to myself here a little bit. When temptation is knocking at your door, that is a really, really bad time to start preparing for temptation. You need to have a plan ahead of time. One scripture that I'm sort of thinking of right now that this reminds me of is actually Daniel, a little bit later in Israel's history, to where it says that when it came time for he and the three men that were with him, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when it came time for them to be offered the king's food and and defile themselves— that they had prepared ahead of time, they had purposed in their heart beforehand that they were not going to allow that to happen. You see, if you don't make your mind up beforehand, if you haven't prepared for that possibility, if you haven't thought through that scenario in your head, and sin and temptation shows up at your door, it's going to be a lot harder to resist. It's going to be a lot harder to sort of weave your way out of that. I think a great example would be how uh, the Mike Pence standard, which I, I know he's not the one that invented it. It's just kind of become popularized by that. That The way that he avoids sin or avoids even the appearance of sin is he doesn't have meals with or meetings with women unless his wife is present or their spouse is is present. And so if that is the case, then you can't even come up with the appearance of impropriety. You see, you don't put yourself in those situations because somebody like Pence or or other Christians that we can see throughout the Scripture, we can give biblical examples of people that have already made up their mind ahead of time. They have already prepared in their mind what they are going to do when placed in that situation. They've already wrapped their head around this thing. When Potiphar's wife goes after Joseph, Joseph got the heck out of there. Now, maybe Joseph is just an excellent spiritual person, that was able to, in a split second, make the right decision. Maybe that's the case, but his answer doesn't seem to suggest that. Because his primary concern there was, how can I, to my master who has already put me over everything in his house, has already put me in a position of prestige and power, and has put his trust in me, how can somebody like me do something like that to him. And more importantly, how can I sin against my God by doing this thing that you're asking me to do? That doesn't sound like somebody that's making that up as he goes along. That sounds like somebody that has thought about this situation, meditated upon it, and thought about how will I, how am I going to react if X happens? How am I going to react if a, if a woman starts making advances toward me? And, and maybe, and, and this is kind of the indication that we're given from that story, that Potiphar's wife had already made some advances towards him, he had already been aware that it was possible that she was going to make that request, and so he game-planned it out in his head ahead of time as to how he was going to react. Israel should have done the same with this battle. They should have thought ahead, okay, what happens if we do have to go to war with the Philistines? Uh, Well, we're going to need swords and spears, and so we should probably have at least one person in the entire country that knows how to make those. It would have been a lot further along if they had just done that simple level of uh, preparation. And the thing is, when it comes to weakness, when it comes to our own frailties, being aware of those things, understanding where those weaknesses are, that goes a long way in helping us to work out the kinks in our armor beforehand. That anything that we're struggling with, whether it's something like pride or lust or greed, if we're aware of those things... And we know that those are the things that are most likely to tempt us. And we can read the scripture and meditate upon those things and try to figure out, okay, how how do I work past this? Just putting in the little bit of mental preparation it takes to do that, that's going to go a long way in making those decisions. A great example is when it comes to, to people that are young, that are teenagers, the ones that have already set up their mind ahead of time, for example, to not have sex before they're married— those tend to be the ones that don't. Because even the ones that would sort of in an ethereal way say that they weren't going to do that, if they haven't thought through those scenarios of, okay, but what happens if I wind up in this situation? It's a lot easier for them to succumb to temptation because of that. And that's true of adults as well. And so the thing that we have to remember is because this is a spiritual battle, because this is spiritual warfare and we are fighting against an enemy that seeks our souls, what we need to keep in mind is that training training is not like cramming for a test. It's something that you have to do daily. It's something you have to be diligent about. And it's something you have to do even when you know you don't know whether or not a battle is imminent or not. You should train so you're ready for those things even when they sneak up on you. And in the same way, it's important for us to daily maintain our prayer life and reading the Scripture, making sure that we're meditating upon the law of God, making sure that we're thinking through scenarios that if temptation does come towards us, how are we going to make sure that we keep ourselves pure and free from sin, at least as much as humanly possible? And so, if that is the case, that's going to go a long way in helping us live a life that looks a lot more like Jesus Christ— then Israel, that on the eve of this big battle that they're going to have with their greatest rivals, wind up caught with their pants down, metaphorically. Not having swords and spears to fight in the war that they're about to go down in. Don't put yourself in that scenario. Train, prepare, daily seek after God. And that'll go a long way in preparing you for the spiritual battle of your life. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.